The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. I'm Rashma Kapadia, Associate Editor at Barron's. Welcome to Managing Your Money, How to Position Your Portfolio to Ride Out Volatile Markets and the Fed's Next Moves. Today with me is Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist and Portfolio Manager of Hightower Advisors. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much, so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, it's a big day in the world of the Fed. There's tons of things um, happening, um, obviously, with stuff that we've seen overnight in Russia. So thank you so much for coming to lend us some insight. Um, let's start with rates and what you're expecting later this afternoon from Chair Powell and crew. Sure. Um, it's the number one question and the hot topic uh, du jour. I can't wait until we get through it, to be honest with you, <laughs> just so that we know. But I think the market is expecting 75 basis points um, in terms of a rate hike. I think also the most important thing will be the tone from Chair Powell, as well as the dot plots, which might be over 4%, more likely 4.27%, which just means that rates likely continue to move higher even after today. And here's the thing. The, the Fed has a dual mandate, as you know. They are looking at jobs uh, and they are looking at inflation. Those are the two things that they have to get price stability on. And the unemployment numbers are really under control. If you look at the, the initial claims data, which is really more leading a leading indicator versus non-farm payrolls. But if you look at the initial claims, they have now fallen five straight weeks in a row. The four-week moving average is down 8,000, and we are close to, again, record lows. So Mm -hmm. the the job market is very strong. In fact, there are more job openings right now than unemployed people. So if you want a job, you can get a job. And by the way, you can actually get paid more for that job because wages are on the rise. The second mandate is inflation. And the Fed has to focus very much so on inflation because, as we know, it's very high. Uh, It's north of 8% in the CPI and PPI. It is 4.8% in the core PCE, which is what they like to look at uh, rather than CPI and PPI. And their goal is to get to two. So we mm-hmm. know inflation is, is really out of control. They've got to fight it. And that's why they're going to go 75, I think, today. If they go 100, that's okay. But at the end, it doesn't really matter because rates are actually just going higher. And they're probably going to stay high for a longer period of time. And the problem is, or the issue is, that we as investors are looking at is we, it takes a, there's a big lag effect between the time that the Fed raises rates or even if they lower rates, right? It takes about nine months to get into the economy. And so we don't even know how, what they've already done, what that impact is going to be for 2023. Wow, yeah. So that really puts some perspective into the potential volatility and pain, um, both for the economy and the markets down the road. I mean, so like how, you know, I, I know that things look relatively strong in terms of the unemployment situation at this point, but how are you thinking about the health of the U.S. economy? And and of course, this is not happening in a vacuum. We're also seeing trouble in Europe, trouble in China. So from where you sit, what, you know, how, how strong is the U.S. economy and, and what should we be expecting in the next year to two? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a very challenging year for sure. Um, I don't think right now we are in a recession. Um, and the reason I say that is because there was a lot of stimulus put into the economy over the last three years for obvious reasons, because we closed the economy down. And it does take, talk, talk about a lag effect, it does take a while for that stimulus to get into the economy. And so we had a lot of fiscal, a lot of monetary, if you add the two together, uh, that was it was at, at, at the peak. We were put. It was 60% of U.S. GDP was um, was put in place from fiscal and monetary policies. Just to put that into perspective, the last crisis we had in 2008, the fiscal and monetary policies that were put in place were 5% of U.S. GDP. Wow. So we put it in. We put an enormous amount of liquidity yeah. into the system. And by the way, it worked. Right. We saw a V-shaped recovery, and that was good. Well. This year, not as much liquidity. Now we know the Fed is pulling back. We also know on the fiscal side, while we did get a few uh, programs uh, passed, they're much smaller uh, in nature. And so as the liquidity kind of drains off, we are seeing a slowdown. And we are, uh, across the board, really, we're seeing it in housing for sure. If you look at sales and you look at uh, the building uh, levels, if you look at permits, which are a leading indicator um, and you look at inventories, all of these things are going in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what the Fed wants. The Fed wants to slow down housing because there's a multiplier effect in housing. When you buy a house, you have to put stuff into that house. Yeah. You want to put stuff outside your house. You have to buy a car to get from your house to everywhere else. And so they want to slow housing for sure. Uh, they are. But the problem is home prices are still up double digits. Mm -hmm. And so we are seeing a slowdown. As I mentioned, housing, we're seeing a slowdown in manufacturing. We are seeing a slowdown in retail sales. But I don't think we're in a recession because, at least at this very moment, and that is because we have such a strong job market. And that's going to take a long time to, to, to reverse. But that's what we're looking at. So we're going from something like 5 6% GDP possibly to about, one and a half, two percent this year. And then, of course, we just have to see how these rate increases impact the economy. And as I mentioned, there is that lag effect. We just got to see how that's going to impact 2023. I think the odds of a recession next year are are higher um, because of the higher interest rate environment. But let's see what they let's see what the Fed does. Uh, it's, It's very possible they can engineer just a soft landing, mm-hmm. but they don't have a very good, they don't have a good credibility, right? I mean, since 1930, every time they've raised rates, they've only been successful in a, in a, in a, a slowdown in a soft landing 10% of the time. Yeah. So we're hopeful, we're right. hopeful that they can do it. But, you know, I've learned a long time ago, hope is not an investment strategy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wishful thinking can get you into trouble in the market. Yeah. Um, so, so I just want to um, remind our audience to, to submit your questions and we'll try to get get them as we go through this conversation. Um, so taking it to the market, Stephanie, I mean, if we are our economy in a way, it almost perversely, the market wants to see some bad news so it can kind of get on with its life to some extent. So how are, how are you thinking about the market at this juncture? You know, are we in for more pain? We saw a very sharp move, obviously, after the CPI um, a couple of weeks ago. You know, what 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 are you looking at? Are we at levels that you want to start kind of adding back into it? If you've been sitting on the on the sidelines, you still want to be defensive. Give me your kind of your market perspective at this point in time. 
Sure, sure. And so it all comes down to earnings, right? And that's why we talk about the economy at, you know, at length, because if the economy slows, what does that do for corporate earnings? Uh, it probably slows down corporate earnings. But what I would say is the companies, especially U.S. companies, have done a remarkable job over the last three and a half years at streamlining, at cost cutting, at putting money into their companies to grow for the long term, investing. And earnings have held up remarkably well. And so to the extent we go into a recession or we just have a slowdown, we know that earnings are likely to come down. But by how much? Because why, why are earnings important? Because actually stocks follow earnings, yeah. right, in either direction. And so what I would say is definitely there is a risk to earnings coming down. But I would also say companies that have pricing power and that have done all of these cost-cutting measures over the last several years – there's something to be said about that. They've ha their earnings have actually held in relatively well. So what I always have said, I mean, in good times and bad, I like to use a decline in the market. And this year we're down 19% in the S&P 500. I like to upgrade in quality. Mm -hmm. If I can get the number one or number two player in any industry on sale, and, and believe you me, we, we've got a lot on sale here this year. Uh, if I can get a number one or number two company on sale I, uh, down 20 or 30% because they're just selling everything, well, then I'm going to look to those kinds of companies. And then I'm also looking at a barbell approach. A barbell just simply means you have a little bit of growth, a little bit of value, because the markets are changing so rapidly uh, in terms of what styles are doing well and what aren't. And what I like about a barbell is it gives you diversification. Mm -hmm. So I own a bit of growth and a bit of value. I will say growth has gotten hit much harder than value year to date. So the Russell 1000 growth index is down 25%. The Russell 1000 value is down 13%. So actually, you ask, you know, what am I doing? I'm actually starting to tweak a little bit to the growth side of the equation, just because I do think that there's some wonderful values or growth stocks that are trading at wonderful values. That's great. So you just answered one of the questions we had from our audience from as she, she was asking, which way do you tilt that barbell portfolio? Um, so let me just dig into that in terms of growth, because obviously growth is down more, but it was also up a lot more. Values had a horrible um, decade prior to, to all of this. And, and also when it comes to sort of rising rates, it does seem to impact some of those growth stocks, right? So how do you think about tech stocks in this rising rate environment? Well, it's interesting, yes, because when, you, and it's a great question because growth um, and, and, you know, uh, is represented by, by technology, right? If you look at uh, technology stocks in the S&P 500, if you look at technology and then you also look at communication services, which, you know, up until a couple of years ago, the two were lumped together. Mm -hmm. um, those two sectors represent 35% of the S&P 500 in, a wait, in waiting. So, I often get asked the question, does tech need to work for the market to work? Well, it's a big waiting. So yeah, yeah it kind of does need to work, right? And tech has been out of favor this year. We know for sure um, the XLK, the technology ETF is down 25%. Com services is down 33%. So that's really taken it on the chin. And, uh, and I think um, there are some opportunities. Uh, I am under weight tech at this point. But I have been adding uh, recently to, as I mentioned, a little bit more on the growth side. Um, I have been adding to some technology plays. 
because I think they're down enough and the valuations are very, very attractive. And when you think about technology, maybe it's out of favor right now. Maybe growth is out of favor for the time being. You still have wonderful total addressable market stories mm-hmm. to be involved in. So you should be certainly looking for cybersecurity companies. You should certainly look for enterprise spending recovery as everybody goes back to the office. Looking at, we all know AI. We all know about the smartphone. We all know about cloud. These are really great end markets and themes you should definitely have exposure to over the next 5, 10, 20 years. So it might not, be, it might not feel good right now in tech, but I do think down 25, 30, 40%, some of these names are really, really interesting. Now, what I don't want to do is I don't want to own non-earners. Right. I want to own quality companies. That's why I say when you can get some of these cloud-based companies, some of these semiconductor companies on sales down 25, 30%. And you know what? You can dollar cost average um, if you don't feel real confident in putting all your money into one basket or one name at, at one time. You should do it because I do think over the long run, they will, technology will outperform. But that's part of the barbell, right? Mm-hmm. So if I add to, to some of my tech, I'm going to add to some on the other side, on the value side of things, energy, materials, financial, industrial. Mm-hmm. Uh, hard mm-hmm. to own those when the economy is slowing, but those companies have pricing power. So that, that kind of gets to another question that we just had um, from Robert in terms of your outlook for oil stocks. So how are you thinking about energy at this juncture? Sure. So energy has, has been a remarkable uh, sector to own this year. The XLE is up 40%. Some stocks are up even more than that. So here's what I think about energy. Um, I do think things have changed over the last several years. So about three, four years ago, companies started to get pressure from some of the ESG investors, and they started to uh, understand that they needed to change their strategy. And that in, in that, when oil prices go up, maybe not to uh, drill more, produce more, but to rather use that free cash flow to return it to shareholders in terms of buybacks and dividends, in addition to getting a game plan on making the ESG investors more comfortable with their long-term plans, meaning green and clean and putting into, in, into place all kinds of new policies. And so as a consequence, the industry really uh, did not overproduce as oil prices went higher. Um, I've lost count, quite frankly, how many companies have issued special dividends this year alone, because if you think about it, the companies have done a really good job at lowering their cost structure. And so their cost break even, meaning where do they make money, is at $40 a barrel at this point in time on average, not mm-hmm. everyone, 40 mm-hmm. to 50. So, so think about it. Oil prices right now, if you look at WTIs at 83, they're minting money. Yeah. And so what has happened is the, the free cash flow is going into shareholder returns. And, and you have more investors that are embracing energy stocks as a result. So I'm double my benchmark. It's 5% of the S&P 500. I'm at 10% in my portfolio. And I would recommend to be overweight in energy, especially the quality companies, because you yeah. want the companies that are going to offer dividends. And, and that's what But the interesting thing is, even though the stocks are up a lot, the multiples, the PE multiples are coming down. 
And that is because earnings are going higher. So if you ask me where I have most confidence in terms of where earnings growth will be, it will be in the energy sector. Hmm, interesting. That's great. And obviously, we're seeing news out of um, Russia that kind of just <clears throat> makes it clear that this situation with the war in Ukraine is is not really um, going away, unfortunately, anytime soon. So yes. that, that's no. uh, a good point. Yeah. Uh, um, unfortunately, so, yeah. So you mentioned quality a lot, and I think we, we kind of throw around that term. So I want you to define it and then perhaps give us an example of maybe a quality tech stock um, that you've been sort of adding to as you kind of go back into growth. Oh, sure. Uh, so quality, I mean, looking at the their number one or number two in their industry, uh, they have a very strong balance sheet. They have very strong free cash flow. And most importantly, they have a good management team. And I don't just mean the CEO and the CFO. I actually mean the bench and what their track record is. Uh, and uh, you can see companies from time to time, every company will stumble from time to time. But these are the kinds of companies, when they do stumble, that's when I look at the management team and their track record and can they kind of get back on track? Can, is there a catalyst for that? Um, I, you asked for a tech, but I'll, a technology name, but I'll just mention, I think Starbucks is the perfect example of quality on sale, down 30%, and uh, a new CEO. And that new CEO happens to have a very good track record. He comes from Reckitt. Um, uh, it's a European consumer company. When he ran that company, he actually, the multiple went from 11 times earnings to 18 times because he was able to execute, turn the company around, use the free cash flow to increase investments so that they could grow above average and then also to use the free cash flow to, to return in, in terms of dividends. On a technology name, uh, one of the companies that I have been adding to is Accenture. Mm -hmm. um, Accenture is down about 30% in the year. They're number one in outsourcing and consulting. They are right in the crosshairs of the digitization theme, which is a very big theme. And people don't give them credit, but they have actually built out their cloud strategy. Uh, they have a partnership with Salesforce.com. But about a, decade ago, about a decade ago, they had a billion dollars in their cloud strategy. That has grown uh, tenfold in the last decade. And so they realized and recognized that was an area of strength and growth for the company. And they are growing double digits, top line and bottom line, and they have margin expansion. And, uh, and they also have pricing power. So mm -hmm. that's uh, an example of uh, on the, in the technology world. That's a great one. Um, so we've got, as you may imagine, some questions about Apple. Steve's asking, um, you know, does that sort of, is that a high quality company generates a ton of cash? Um, are you concerned about its multiple? No. Well, it's not cheap at 26 times forward estimates. Mm -hmm. It's definitely not. It's not cheap because the company has recurring revenue and a huge ecosystem, as you all know, um, and they have a new product cycle. Yeah. Now, some people are poo-pooing the 14. I think any product cycle is a product cycle. It could be a super cycle or just a product cycle. It doesn't matter, but you're going to see good results, solid results. Um, if China can get their act together, they should do better. And they've got a $90 billion buyback program. So there's natural support. And oh, by the way, it's Warren Buffett's largest position. So I pay attention to what he owns for sure. 
And so that that sounds like a positive on, on Apple. Um, so yeah. I guess um, so. There, you know, there are, and we kind of touched on this a little bit in the barbell strategy. But what kind of companies um, or what kind of stocks go up when interest rates go up? It's a question for Marcos. You know, how are you um, thinking about sort of free cash flow and and and, and interest rates and, and things like that? Sure. Well, and that is one. So, so as interest rates go higher, obviously the, the market this year has struggled, right? And I, I, I get this question a lot. Can the market go higher if the, if rates are going higher? And no, actually it's a, it's a, it's a choppy environment because we don't know as interest rates go higher, what that's going to do to long-term growth. Uh, and so that's why uh, the market is kind of doing what it's doing this year. Mm-hmm. The market is not like unknowns and this is a big, this is a big unknown, but that being said, when interest rates go higher, long duration assets, meaning growth and technology, tend not to do well, but, right. um, and value actually tends to do much better. But that's exactly what has played out so far this year. And so, in my opinion, whether rates go, the, the terminal rate goes to four or five and stays there for a while, I feel like that, that's the reason why the markets are down where they are. It's already pricing in. Remember, mm-hmm. market is a discounting mechanism. So, my 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 story is I want to own value as interest rates stay high, but tech and growth have come down so much. I want to take advantage over the long term. That's why I say a barbell makes the most sense just to balance it out. That sounds good. Can we just break it down for those folks who perhaps are not as familiar as you and I about long duration assets and sort of why value does better um, in a high rate environment versus growth? Just kind of explain the mechanics of sort of why that usually is the case. It's sort of an interesting thing when what, what I've observed over the years is when growth is scarce, growth assets tend to do better. When growth is maybe a little bit more above average, value stocks do better. See, because when growth is scarce, then it really is, uh, we depend on companies that have, that can grow no matter what in any yeah. kind of environment. In, in a slow time, in a fast time, and, and then we can talk about the discount rate and everything else. But just to make it simple, growth stocks can grow, period, right? Mm-hmm. That's why the multiples on average are higher than value stocks. Value sure. stocks tend to be more cyclical. And so, so just to keep it kind of simple, like the, what we, we talked about in terms of the total addressable market, well, yeah, that's why Accenture is going to be able to grow double digits and triple digits because they're in the end markets that are growing. That's why many semiconductors are the same. That's why many software companies are, are the same. So I, I, rather than getting kind of caught up in all the mechanics, it's simply that if you think growth is going to be scarce, growth stocks will do well. That's this great. year, though, you know, if, if it's all about value. And again, I go back to balance because it's impossible to time, as you know, right? Sure. I mean, it's so hard to figure out all the the the, the 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 changes and 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 the the nuances that's a good point so that balance is very important so you know when we think about balance we think about the 60 40 portfolio you and i were talking before we started it's it's been a hard year for the bonds um we're seeing sort of double digit losses i mean like how should people be thinking about that fixed income portion of their portfolio um especially if you think the fed is gonna see rates of four to five percent how do you kind of yeah you know manage it it's, in, it's interesting. A, I mean, if someone would guarantee me 5% for the next, you know, 20 years or so, I, I would take it. But here's the thing. People, I think, forgot you could lose money in fixed income. I think, I mean, most people expect equities are going to be volatile, right? But 
fixed income, they think, okay, it's safe. I can put my money there. I won't lose money. Well, you're losing money this year. Um, unless, unless you don't take any action, then you, you know, you don't, you won't lose money, but clearly people are not feeling good about their portfolios overall. Um, number one, I would say, uh, the long-term average for equities, the return, total return is about 10%, uh, over the long term. Now, the last three years, we had a compounded annual growth rate in the S&P 500 of 28%. Yeah. So, well, the last three years were not normal, but people thought it was. They forgot that it's really the average is 10. So this year, not only do we have all these unknowns in the equity market, but we also have mean reversion that is happening, right? That's normal and natural. But long term, 10% is great. Now, fixed income, yeah, people forgot they could lose money. But guess what? As rates approach 4 or 5%, and even in some junk bond uh, yields are even higher, it's yeah. really quite remarkable um, that – it has been in the last several years. There is no alternative. You had to own uh, equities. And if you had to get income, you wanted to own dividend growth or high dividend growth stocks. Now, all of a sudden, you're four or five percent. And that's not such a bad thing. So mm -hmm. I feel like 60-40 uh, is still a very good blend. I think it's balanced. I think high quality corporate high quality munis is really where you want to go kind of down the fairway, if you will, nothing too crazy. Um, but stay patient and don't panic because eventually the fed is going to get to their mandate of keeping inflation uh, of, of getting inflation low or lower. That's going to work eventually. It's just going to be a little bit of pain in the meantime, just kind of for the markets and the economy, but um, they'll get it. And when they get it, you know, you, you will be happy that you have bought low and 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 uh, in both equities and in fixed income, people say, by the way, all the time they buy low and sell high. But they don't. Most right. people buy high, <laughs> sell low, right? Right. So yeah. I would just say, well, try to buy low and sell high. And and obviously, um, you know, if you know, advisors out there will certainly recommend the same. And so this is so a little bit of a good um, point I wanted to kind of ask you about is there are a lot of people who who you know, followed everyone's advice and stayed put and so are sort of looking at that bond portfolio with the double digit losses. So if, if you didn't do anything during this period of volatility in the last nine months and you stayed put um, in a sort of diversified portfolio, diversified bond portfolio, you should probably stay put, right? Or, or should you be sort of tweaking that bond portfolio at, at, at this juncture, given that the rate environment has changed? Because I think yeah, a lot of people I mean, were sort of on the shorter end of the duration curve, right? Um, kind of going into this. I think, yes, I think that, that was the common investment, short duration, a couple of years and that sort of thing. I would do nothing. And then you know what I also would do? I'd turn the TV off. Yes. I would. <laughs> I really would. Because it's scary, right? It's, it's, they're really nice people. I promise I'm a nice person. But, if, you know, it's, well, let us do what we do uh, from a professional basis. We do it every day. I, do, I try very hard to buy low and sell high. Um, and I try not to have a lot of turnover because, again, those long-term stats in the equity market anyway are quite compelling. Um, and sometimes when you get wrapped up in the every day, you get nervous and you want to make some changes and, you, you know, you get frustrated. But longer term, it's a very smart decision to have a balanced portfolio, barbell on the equity side, and don't change what your thought process is on the fixed income side. I mean, fixed income is not supposed to create alpha. 
in your portfolio, mm-hmm. right, right? Right. It's supposed to. It's supposed to keep you calm. It's supposed. It's supposed to balance out and even out the um, the the more volatile equity side of the portfolio. Yeah, that's a very good point. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question from Lita, which is, um, you know, what your thoughts are on sort of the crypto market at this point in time, and if it's sort of a classic mania. Yeah. So to me, I think crypto is like owning a Nasdaq stock on steroids. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. It is, it is not fundamentally driven, meaning I can do all the analysis on the macro, all, all that I want, and it won't matter because I'll wake up one day and because the macro environment is volatile, then crypto and Bitcoin and all the others, which basically are very, very correlated to each other, is, you know, they, it, could, it could be down a couple percent, it could be up a couple percent. I don't really like to invest in companies that don't, trade on fundamentals. And I'll, by the way, I'll, I'll say one thing about um, Chinese stocks. This is one of the reasons why I will not own a China, Chinese pure play. I might own U.S. companies that have exposure to China if I think China is a place to be investing, but I will not own a Chinese stock because you, you could do all the fundamental analysis. You wake up one day and the government decides to change the, yes. to change the rule. Which we so saw, right. Kind of, yeah. yeah. So crypto is kind of the same thing, right? And now you have Kind of regulatory uh, issues that are overhanging um, this asset class, and I quite frankly think there's not a lot of people in crypto in a in a big way, and so that also creates for the volatility. So if you believe in it, and I just I don't, but if you do, good for you. But I wouldn't own any more than five percent of a portfolio. It's just too volatile, and if I own five percent, just make sure you are comfortable comfortable with if you might lose it all, right? Yeah. You might lose that 5%. Uh, but, but you also might gain 25%, 30%, 100%. So it's, it's, a, it's just, I think it's just a little too early. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I think a lot of people are kind of coming to that um, sort of view. Um, so we have a, a question from Marcus asking, you know, you talked about value. When you're thinking about value, does that mean a certain PE level stocks that are trading below a certain price earnings ratio? And is there sort of an ETF that kind of um, that you enjoy? you sort of use on this front? I mean, I, I look at the, 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 um, the Russell 1000 value uh, index. Um, that's kind of the proxy because it's just so diversified. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't, I don't view, um, and you could, I mean, really, honestly, you could look at any of the value uh, indexes because they are all very similar. Uh, I, would, I would honestly just choose the lowest cost yep. ETF, quite frankly. Um, that's number one. Number two, uh, there's some multiple per se, but I kind of view a multiple of 10, 11, 12 times sort of interesting. I also like to look at EV to EBITDA, yep. right? Because that's an important metric as well. I look at you know, profitability, right? And the enterprise value to the profitability. Um, and that under 10 is always an interesting, those are interesting numbers. Um, and, uh, but you know, it's interesting. There are some growth stocks that have lost their multiple um, by, I'll, I'll give you an example, like Estee Lauder usually trades on a historical average 37 times. It has fallen to 30 times. Mm. Now that's not cheap in my mind, but for Estee Lauder, it is right. relative to its story, history. So, so everything can, you can look at value in a lot of different metrics, but I would look at the historical average and then where it's trading at currently. If you have confidence in the estimates, then it's sort of an interesting idea. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so I know we're at 1230. I'm going to ask you two more questions just to kind of get them in if, if you'll bear with me. Um, so there's a lot of questions about banks. Um, you know, what are some of the banks that you think are attractive at this point? And, and, and are, you know, are they attractive? And at what point would you maybe start to be worried about the financial exposure? Uh, I, I, if we go into a deep recession, all the stocks, all the sectors are going down um, uh, and banks will as well. But one thing that has changed over the last several years, especially since the 2008 crisis, is that the government has required the companies to have excess capital in case we have an emergency, in case we have something like what happened in 2008. So companies are bank stocks are flush with cash and capital. And a lot of that capital, they cannot return to shareholders. So anything that's in excess above what the government is requiring can be used for shareholder creation. And that's what the companies have done. Uh, they have um, raised dividends. They have increased buybacks. Uh, their delinquency rates are extremely low. Let me give you an example. American Express, their delinquency rates, because they release them every month, was 0.78% year over year. Wow. Okay. The, in, a, in a recession... In a bad recession, those numbers get to eight or nine percent. Wow. You're at 0.78. So, so that's just one example. But across the spectrum, they've done a really, really good job at managing non-performing assets, non-performing loans, delinquencies, and that sort of thing. And the banks, they benefit from higher rates, especially on the short end, where they, they will see net interest income expansion and net interest margin expansion as a result. So I think a lot of these stocks are trading at one time book. I am overweight the banks for sure. Is there a favorite one? Oh, well, I have a lot of favorite ones. I, Wells Fargo is my is the turnaround story because they have a yeah. fairly new CEO, a lot of fat they can cut. Morgan Stanley has done a masterful job at M&A, and Bank of America has done a great job at operating leverage. So those are the three I like very much. That's great. Thank you for that. Um, so... You know, you mentioned China a couple times, you know, there's been this question of at what point in time does international look more attractive? Obviously, they were, they've had it, not the, the run that the U.S. markets had had up to this point in time. So how are you thinking about that U.S. versus international um, sort of? Yeah, you know, I, I get that question a lot. Um, international uh, is cheap. It's always cheap. Um, and when I, I mean emerging markets as well as developed. Now, let's start with developed, meaning, you know, Europe and Japan. It, they're cheap because they're uh, and they look cheap and their multiple uh, excuse me their margins are so low and it always looks attractive as a result. But these companies are under enormous pressure. They cannot uh, reduce costs and restructure the way U.S. companies can. So their margins are low. And whenever I look at a company, I like when the margins are low because that means you can change the story, you can cut costs, and you can uh, do a lot of things to get those margins higher. And therefore, you'll see operating leverage on the bottom line. But companies in Europe and in Japan and elsewhere, developed countries, very, very hard for them to see operating leverage. So the valuations are cheap, cheap for a reason. EM is cheap because it's just a, it's so incredibly cyclical. And if, 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 if when we talked about growth stocks being able to grow no matter what, well, and cyclical stocks being uh, more value names and value sectors, and they do uh, have ups and downs a lot. It's the same thing with EM. Yeah. I would not uh, have a problem with 5%, 5% weight in, in EM uh, and maybe a 10% weight in international for diversification, but mm -hmm. I still want to have the majority of my exposure in U.S. companies. It's just the disclosure and the transparency is so much better here. And if I want to have exposure internationally or in China, as I mentioned before, I'll own U.S. companies that have exposure, have mm -hmm. a lot of revenues in these areas.
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay, so uh, we mentioned scary. I think there are a lot of things to be scared about right now in the market and, and geopolitically. Um, do you sort of see more downside? That's a question we've gotten from Ralph. Another person asked um, what your S&P targets are for the end of the year. I mean, just give us your quick sort of, it, it sounded like you, there are opportunities for investors, but you may still see the markets having some up, up, ups and downs. What, what is, is that the right takeaway? I think it's going to be a choppy environment until we get the Fed to give either to end tightening or to give us clarity that they're they're going to they're close to pivoting. Uh, so I think choppiness because there's a lot of unknown. We don't know what's going to happen next year. That being said, do not get panicked out of the market. We're already down 18 percent. A lot of bad news is discounted. There are a lot of great companies and quality companies that are on on sale, and so. Just keep your keep the blinders on, turn the TV off, and and look for just best in class on sale. Great advice, Stephanie. Thank you so much. So that's all the time we have for today. Um, thank you for tuning in. Thanks, Stephanie, for being here. Always love talking to you. We've got the macro and the micro, which is what we love. Um, we hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. Barron's Deputy Editor Ben Levison and healthcare industry reporter Josh Nathan Cassis will discuss the outlook for healthcare stocks and the latest news on COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. Thank you for listening. Be well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.